0: Hey Shanna, did you know that you can purchase audiobooks directly from your local bookstore?
1: Yes, with Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But with Libro FM,
0: you get to search up your local indie bookstore and support them instead. And if you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to squeeze more reading into your busy life. I constantly have a book in my ear because cleaning the house or exercising is so much more fun while reading.
1: Sign up for Libre.fm and use the code GOODBOOKS to get two books instead of one
0: for the price of your first month's membership. Good books. Good books. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best Book Club podcast. I'm Jen. And I'm Shanna. And today we are doing something just a little bit different. But first, what are you reading, Shanna? Jen,
1: I am reading Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. I am finally back on the Discworld, and I am loving it. I am about twenty-five percent of the way through this one, and it's every bit as fantastic as everybody in the world has told me it is. So,
0: well, that's exciting. Do you know the book American
1: Gods? I mean, I know of it, but I have not read it yet. Well, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman were very good friends, as you know. Basically, every god, or everything can be a god as long as there are people who believe in it. And Terry Pratchett's gods work the same way. I'm not sure which came first, the Pratchett or the Gaiman. But in this one, the great god Om, he has like a great big following, but not everybody is truly believing they're just like going to church and so without true belief the gods they're not strong and so right now the great god om is a turtle on earth (laughs) and it's very silly but it's also oh he's so good at satire he does satire in a way that doesn't make me want to throw the book and i love it so yeah i'm loving that what are you reading
0: well it's kind of funny i Okay, this might be a side that no one else wants to listen to, possibly. But one of the books that I'm reading right now, they're talking about a series that they're lending out to their friends. Um, that's a fantasy series. And at first it sounded like they were talking about Lord of the Rings, because they're talking about like dwarfs and rings and fountains. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, but then they were talking about a shopping mall. And then just the way that they're describing it, I was like, this kind of sounds like a Pratchett book to me (laughs) that they're talking about. I feel like I've heard you talk about a shopping
1: A shopping (laughs) mall. Yeah, I I know exactly which Pratchett book they're talking about.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, that's so cool. I feel so smart. Isn't it so nice when you know the thing? (laughs) Yeah, I picked up on the reference. (laughs) Okay, so what I'm reading right now is The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, um, which is a horror, which is all I'm into right now. I'm not sure how it's going. I think it's it's going good, but it is about someone being haunted by an elk. So that's a little different. I
1: know the cover of this book. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much what's been happening. But it is spooky and it's tying in like Native American culture, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I was reading Velvet Was the Night by Silvia Moreno Garcia and I just have to throw it in there that I had to DNF it cuz it was so boring. Oh, it's so disappointing to hear that. I could be wrong cuz this is kind of how I felt when I started reading Mexican Gothic. I was like, "Oh, I don't think I like this and I don't like these characters and ah, oh, but I'm going to keep going." And then it was okay in the end like I liked how twisted and weird it got. But this one isn't horror, it's noir. And I think without the horror, I'm not into her characters.
1: Yes. And I know you definitely... Well, not that you've been in a mood. You're always in a horror mood. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm always in a mood, for
1: sure. (laughs) But we are heading into spooky season. So honestly, dump any book that is not getting your spook on.
0: Exactly. And like, you know, I've just learned that I Know What You Did Last Summer is a book... And that's all I want to read. And I want to throw everything else out. Why haven't you? Well, because I have to, it's, it doesn't have audio. Uh. So these other two books, they're on audio. I'm currently reading Book Club Book for real. So as soon as that one's out, then I can actually pick up, I Know What You Did Last Summer, but
1: that is what I want. Oh, well, good luck. You're never going to get there. Yeah, never. (laughs) But we'll talk about that next time.
0: (laughs) Okay, so back to what's happening this week uh so last week on september 8th the winner of the 2021 women's prize for fiction was finally announced
1: it was supposed to be announced in july but got pushed back because of covid
0: so i mean you've probably all heard the news but the winner is <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> really helps that we say it differently <laughs> yeah whoops <laughs> uh,
1: oh well you know the bug Yeah. So that one's by Susanna Clark. Our whole plan was to do an episode on the winner, but we've already talked all about this book at length in an earlier episode.
0: So we are going to share that episode with you again because it's a good one and because we couldn't possibly say anything new about this book.
1: I have said so many things about this book, so... Enjoy. Maybe a second listen will make me sound smarter and clearer.
0: <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Best Book Club podcast. I'm Jen. And I'm Shanna. And today we are going to be discussing Susanna Clark's second novel, Piranesi. Yes. Who is Susanna Clark? Tell us, Jen. (laughs) I will. So Susanna Clarke is an English author who was born on November 1st, 1959 in Nottingham, England, and is best known for her debut novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was published in 2004 and won a Hugo Award in 2005. Her second novel, Piranesi, was published in 2020 and was just long listed along with 15 other books for the 2021 Women's Prize for Fiction. I still haven't read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell yet, even though so many people
1: have told me to check it out. Like, it's huge. Well, it is a big deal, but it is also like physically actually huge. Um, so so I keep putting it off
0: and like, I really enjoyed Piranesi, so I'm not sure what my problem is. Me neither. I also have not read it. I know it's very long. It's like 800 pages, so it's definitely a commitment. It does sound more like your type of book though. Oh, it sounds exactly like my type of book. (laughs) Okay. So, okay. I feel like we're going to say Piranesi and Piranesi, different Piranesi. I say Piranesi. Okay, we'll go with that. I think Peranacy is, that say is it? what they were saying in the audiobook. Oh, we could say Peranacy, that's fine. I mean, I don't know. And or maybe I'm just making that up. I have listened to it recently.
1: Yes, this is true. Um
0: we we might say
1: it different a little bit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Piranese, Peranacy,
1: <Piranesi>. tomato, tomato,
0: <laughs> potato, potato. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll start out by just going through the synopsis of this book so you guys know what it's about. Piranesi's... Oh, man. That's going to bug know, me every time now. Okay, I know.
1: I, I'm sorry, everybody. I say Piranesi. Maybe it's wrong. You're just going to have to cope. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> Piranesi's house is no ordinary building. Its rooms are infinite. Its corridor is endless. Its walls are lined with thousands upon thousands of statues, each one different from all the others. Within the labyrinth of halls, an ocean is imprisoned. Waves thunder up staircases. Rooms are flooded in an instant. But Piranesi is not afraid. He understands the tides as he understands the pattern of the labyrinth itself. He lives to explore the house. There is one other person in the house, a man called The Other, who visits Piranesi twice a week and asks for help with research into a great and secret knowledge. But as Piranesi explores, evidence emerges of another person, and a terrible truth begins to unravel. Revealing a world beyond the one Piranesi has always known. Dun, dun, dun. <sighs>
0: dun, dun, dun. <laughs> this is a very short book. It was 272 pages, which is very different from her first book, which, like I said, was almost 800 pages. I went into this book with very little knowledge or expectations, as you suggested. And I do think that was good advice. I think you will be disappointed to find, though, that I didn't love it as much as you did. Ugh. <sighs> No, I'm not surprised to hear that at all. (laughs) This book was
1: very much to my taste in the way that usually sets what I enjoy apart from
0: the majority of people I know. Yeah, I can see what you mean 100%. This (laughs) is very much a Shanna book. There were parts that I enjoyed, and I don't want to give away too much information just yet, but I will say that I really like the atmosphere and I like the idea of the story. But for me personally, the overall package was just a little bit lacking. I know that this doesn't matter to you so much, but I really enjoy a point And in this book, I just didn't find one. Uh, And see,
1: I thought that this book had a wonderful point. I just got to decide what it was. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I love the way that she discussed, well, okay, yes, we won't get into it quite yet, but I thought this was a beautiful and interesting look at mental health and trauma response. Of course, I enjoy my stories strange and convoluted. Yeah,
0: you do. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I like my stories to be more clear. I mean- Do I? I don't know. I mean, that doesn't really sound right necessarily, but maybe. So I've been reading with you for a while, and I have totally
1: noticed that, well, not always, but often you seem to enjoy things that are more high concept and plot driven. Yeah, yeah. you like there to be a clear destination at the end of the book. Uh, I think you thrive on order more than me, though, as well, just in life. So that makes sense to me. (laughs) There are a number of books on my shelf that I know you would absolutely hate. And I almost want to recommend them to
0: you just so that you can wonder what the hell is wrong with (laughs) me, And then I can wonder what the hell is wrong with you. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty much right. I do like order. I do like to be able to look at the book and be like, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. I get it, and then when it's like, ooh, ooh what did and what did that mean, and I'm like, I don't get it. I don't like it, and it makes me feel kind of stupid. What you didn't enjoy the metaphor? No, I like knowing things too. Like, I am very uncomfortable with not knowing the answer. So, if I get to the end of the book and I don't know the answer, I'm out. So, uh, spoiler, that is what happened to me in this book. <laughs> But one thing, I think this is more of an audiobook problem. we both listen to the audio, which I feel like every time we talk about a book, we both listen to the audio.
1: We both have very
0: little babies. Yeah, we both (laughs) listen to a lot of audiobooks. I don't know. (laughs) This book is broken up into journal entries and instead – okay, by the way, I don't like journal entry books.
1: I was actually surprised that that was the very first thing. Like, what? It's a journal?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really make the connection in all honesty because listening to it, it just didn't – the way that – the entries are written. It's kind of still a story format, I found. But yeah, it's broken up into journal entries. And instead of using the traditional date format that we're used to, he says, like, entry for the first day of the fifth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls, which I honestly liked. But hearing it said out loud probably dozens of times got to be so repetitive. And by the end, I never wanted to hear those words ever again. <laughs> but if I was reading it, I would have just skipped over it and it would have been fine. Yes. And see, I could listen to
1: Chuitel Ijafor. Sounds right. I could listen to him talk all day, like forever.
0: If he just wanted to tell me about Albatross, like, would be cool. Tell me your Albatross cool. story. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely did not have a problem with his voice at all. The narration was quite good. It's funny because I kept getting such strong Neil Gaiman vibes, but I honestly don't think I've read enough Neil Gaiman to really have that opinion. (laughs) Well. I guess I've read two and a half books, so it's not the worst, but I think on the scale of Neil Gaiman, it's also not the best. But anyways, I realized that I think it was mostly due to the fact that Neil Gaiman narrates his own books, I think, for the most part. And the last one I listened to was Neverwhere. Great book. I didn't finish it, and I probably should just finish it so I don't have to explain why I didn't finish it every time I mention it, because everybody loves this book. But I was listening to it while overdue pregnant and trying to walk my baby out. So the thought of listening to it again just makes me feel so tired. (laughs) Anyways, I think... His and Neil's voices are similar, or they have similar accents or something. I just kept finding myself transported into that underground London atmosphere that Neverwhere has, and I think it was a little bit distracting. But that is totally a me problem and not a this book problem. I have books like that for me too, so I totally get it. You and the rest of the world will be aghast at my rating for this book of three stars. Which means that it was fine, it was medium. I liked it, but I didn't love it. (sighs) I will get over it eventually.
1: No, I'm kidding. I've heard plenty of mixed reviews, and I think it will be interesting to see what resonated or didn't, as the case may be, with each of us. I gave this one four stars, but it's wavered between four and five
0: for me the longer I sit with it. Yeah, I could even maybe. No, no, I'll say three. I'll say three. Three is good. I don't want to go any lower than that. I don't want to go any higher than that. We're good. (laughs) Yeah, for some people, it seems to have just clicked, and for others, it didn't. Although I'm seeing more clicked than. Not clicked. So I'm not in the majority here. I am excited to hear what your thoughts are because they have been shrouded in mystery for months.
1: Yes, I know. I have just been waiting patiently for anybody else to read it. <laughs> and now your wish is granted. Ah, oh, finally. From this point on, there will be spoilers. We are going to be getting a little bit deeper into the story and what we thought from here on out.
0: So we start the book with the protagonist, who I guess we'll just call Piranesi. Or Piranesi. (laughs) Piranesi. We'll call one of those names. (laughs) Because that's what he is called in the beginning of the book, although it's clear from the beginning that this isn't his actual name. And he's technically unnamed for a lot of the book.
1: Piranesi lives in a house that is full of countless halls and vestibules. The lower halls are flooded with the seas, and the upper halls are in the clouds. Piranesi lives there alone and has come up with numerous ways of surviving and he believes that this is the entire world and that nothing else exists outside of the house and that no other people exist except him and a man he calls the other and also 13 other people who are actually skeletons of people he's never met, but he creates backstories for them. I love it. (laughs) He records every day in a journal and has various tasks that he has to attend to. And though technically alone and isolated from what we know as the world, he doesn't present as
0: unhappy. I don't know how to describe his personality at this point. Each word I come up with is wrong, just feels wrong. Like, he's not childlike, he's not innocent, he's not simple-minded. Like, he is smart, he is a man, he just is. He exists, and there isn't a lot that influences him. Content, maybe? Like, I know what you're trying to say – He has a
1: childlike wonder and reverence for the house.
0: Yeah, like content even isn't, I don't know. I don't know. He's pretty cool with what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I kind of hate about this whole pandemic is how everything is influenced by it, or somehow everything always comes back to it. But I do find myself wanting to say, regardless, that I found the isolation and the ritual of doing the same thing every day very relevant. I think the isolation is something that we are all struggling with. And to see Piranesi constantly try to make connections, like even with these skeletons. I don't know. I've just been really struggling with connection throughout all this. And that aspect of the story stood out to me and made me very tired, (laughs) which may have also affected my enjoyment of this book.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the character Piranesi is actually named after the
1: Italian architect and artist Giovanni Battista Piranesi. I don't even know if that's the (laughs) accent, (laughs) but. That sounds right. Who is famous for his etchings of Rome and of
0: fictitious and atmospheric prisons. Yeah. So I planned on going into this book with no knowledge. It wasn't long before my research-loving brain started looking for information because very little is given away in this story. And a quick Google of Piranesi came up with the information about the man. And as soon as I knew about the prison sketches, it really changed how I was interpreting the story. Yeah, I can see that coloring your perception right from the start for sure.
1: Uh, I knew Piranesi was an Italian architect. Only from spoiler-free reviews that I watched on Booktube.
0: So I had seen some of his sketches, but I didn't look into it past that. I mean, from that little bit of information, I felt sure that... It wasn't just another world that he was living in, but that he was imprisoned in some way. Whether he was imprisoned in the labyrinth of his mind or in this other world, I wasn't sure, but I was really interested in finding out. I really liked the visuals of the house. I thought it was described really well and the atmosphere was set up right from the get-go. Although I know that I did... In part, Piranesi, the artist's sketches that I had already seen, I will post some of those on our socials so you can all see what I mean if you don't already know. Yes, this book definitely isn't lacking in atmosphere.
1: When I looked up Piranesi, though, I was honestly surprised that he wasn't a fawn. I, oh, yeah. I thought he was going to be one, and then he wasn't.
0: Yeah, I wasn't expecting a human man.
1: <laughs> well, just the cover of the book has the fawn on it, right? Doesn't yeah. like, Oh, Pyrenees, this is
0: going to be. I
1: thought it was going to be kind of like the Greek myth with the Minotaur in the mm-hmm. labyrinth, but
0: yeah, which I guess it kind of is. Well, just uh, kind of on an aside, I was listening to madeline miller talk about this book oh. and one of the questions that someone asked her was being a classicist how did you feel about the way that some of the like the statues and the atmosphere and everything was presented in this book and she was like well from a classicist point of view none of it was relevant yeah. <laughs> i was like oh because i kind of thought that maybe there was like stories like from myths or something that were kind of behind some of the things but she was like "Nope, wasn't like oh sweet thank you madeline <laughs> yes good
1: okay because I- <laughs> After a while, I was like, okay, come on. No way am I supposed to be paying attention to every
0: single one of these. So many statues. That makes me feel better. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So there is a 16-year gap between the publication of... Clark's first book and of Pyrenees, and the reason is that shortly after Strange and Norell was released, she became very ill with what was eventually diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome. She wanted to write a sequel to her first book, but the illness overtook her and she was unable to do much of anything for a long time. When she finally felt able enough to start writing again, she knew that she couldn't take on something really complex, or something that would take a lot of research, so she chose to continue with Piranesi, which was a story she started to write back in her 20s. Yeah,
0: and she's so 60 now, so it's kind of a long time coming. Yeah, I found all this out after finishing the book, and this bit of information about her illness brought everything together in a way that really made sense. I found that overall the story did feel quite simple, and the characters were simple. The writing was good, but there wasn't really a lot of depth, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I did find myself wanting more. More information, more backstory, more current story, more character growth and development... And see, I would have to hard disagree in saying
1: that there's a lack of depth. The story is simple and the characters are simple. I can agree with that. We're being told the story from a simple and fractured mind. And it goes back to the open-ended nature of the story, I think. So the reader is able to project meaning where it makes the most sense to them. I love that you can take the story as fantasy and see the story presented as an actual magical portal between worlds, and the story is
0: still great that way. Yeah, I guess maybe lack of depth isn't quite the right way to put it, because we are getting the story from a simple and fractured mind, as you said. So it makes sense that the story would be presented simply. The more that I sit with it, I think the more is revealed, which is something that I both love and hate about books sometimes. In the end, I definitely read it as fantasy. I can see where other layers can be found, I guess. I just don't have it in me to dig that deep right now. And anytime I tried moving in that direction, it always felt like a bit of a reach for me, if that makes any sense at all.
1: I just read something that felt exactly like that to me recently. When I got to the end, I was like, this is probably a good book. And there are probably layers that I could investigate. But I'm not going to do it Mm -hmm. because I am
0: sleepy. Yeah, I'm feeling that in actually like (laughs) almost every book that I'm reading right now.
1: (laughs) So when I read stuff, because I also review stuff, I try really hard not to read other people's opinions before I'm finished forming my own, which can be so hard. Like this book was no different. Once I finished it, I developed my theory and then I went to check my work. I was surprised and delighted to see such a wide range of interpretations of this novel. You are far from the only person who read it as pure fantasy. People who have read her previous work also had very different feelings than people who didn't. I read the story as pure allegory, whereas other reviews I've read in researching for this episode have said they chose not to read it in that way at all. I absolutely love that this book can be read so differently, but also critically I think it shows either incredible skill on the author's part, or so much luck.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those things. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. The story did not go the way that I was expecting, which I both like and dislike. I do like to be surprised. But yeah, like you mentioned before, I also really like order. So (laughs) um, I like my surprise to make sense. (laughs) I want it to be the surprise I was expecting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Then I feel so smart for expecting it in the first place. Anyways, in this case, I really thought that by the way the other was described, that the story was that he was Piranesi's therapist or psychiatrist and that Piranesi was a prisoner in his own mind the other was always dressed in a suit he was an older man and they always met like twice a week i think tuesdays and fridays to talk about stuff I have read some reviews where other people also thought the same thing, but they were glad when that wasn't what the story turned out to be. But I would have loved that story, I think, a lot more. (laughs) I like a psychological twist more than a culty twist, I think. And so I thought that this story had both of those twists.
1: I prefer to see Sixteen, who is a character we haven't mentioned yet, but yes, I like to see Sixteen as the therapist. She is the one who finally reaches Piranesi and brings him out of the house, whereas the other is the one who is torturing him and using him as a means to his own twisted end. His name, we find out later, is Valentine Ketterly, and Ketterly is also one of the many nods to Narnia throughout this novel. Uh, The character of Ketterly is a villain who is pompous and cruel, and he uses and hurts others to achieve his own goals. Uh, Oh, and also he discovers a magic dust and creates magic rings that can transport people between worlds. So there's that. And I should maybe mention that I haven't actually read the entire Narnia series, and what I have read was a long, long time ago. But I do have a decent understanding of the broad strokes of it, because C.S. Lewis was a big Christian writer. So I'm able to recognize some of the names and the symbols, but I am not a Narnia expert, so please don't come at me if
0: you don't like my explanation of Ketterly. I, yeah, I've also read some Narnia books, but not all of them. Maybe, I don't even know. I kind of feel like it's... Uh... Admitting something that's not good. <laughs> it's my deep, dark secret. <laughs> the only reason that I know so much about them is because I grew
1: up Catholic and because it's so big in the Christian realm, right? Mm. That's kind of why I know about them at all. Oh, that, and they're super famous. Yeah, I thought that too. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I thought that both the other and 16 were creations of Pyrenees' psyche and not necessarily actual physical people. But we're based on them.
0: Yeah, I can, I can see what you mean there. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. But we assume you've read the book, so you probably understand. And if you haven't read the book, then you should know that this is also how it kind of feels to read this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Attempting to discuss this novel is challenging, like without jumping around all over the place. Um, Sixteen was described as a cop, but she just didn't really feel like a cop to me. Um, so, maybe you're right about the therapist thing. I guess she was like the hero to him. So, the title of cop would fit nicely into what Piranesi would think uh, was someone who could save him. Uh, yeah. So, way later, we get a name for her, kind of like Cutterly being a subtle
1: nod to that Narnia character. Uh, we get the name for 16 is Raphael, is her last name. And I think for me, that revealed a lot about her without having to explain it. So, This is one of many times I will mention religion seeming to have influences in this book, so buckle up. Archangel Raphael is known as the angel of healing, so that's not nothing. And I know, Jen, you weren't raised religious like I was, so I think that this is an interesting area where our different experiences naturally change our perspectives.
0: Yeah, I had no idea about that, and I think if I had known that, then... Maybe, yeah, I would have picked up on that and it would have kind of changed a few things for me while reading the book. I literally was like, oh, Raphael, that's cool. Maybe she's Italian. <laughs> Maybe she's a Ninja Turtle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I, I did notice that because her name is Sarah Raphael and also 16, but near the end of the book, like they just kind of repeated Raphael like quite a lot. They said that name specifically over and over. So that does make sense. She was a character, though, I would have liked more from and more information about, which kind of goes back to what I said about depth. I guess what I more wanted to say was, like, lack of story. I don't know. But I do understand that, again, we were getting everything from Pyrenees' point of view. And one, he's a very unreliable narrator. And two, he doesn't know what's going on most of the time. And he also doesn't know quite how to form relationships with people in his current state. So it makes sense. I'm not sure how I feel about unreliable narrators, Sometimes I like it, and other times, like in this book, I feel like I'm missing out on the information I actually really want to know. How do you feel about an unreliable narrator?
1: I either love them or hate them. I know. How helpful, (laughs) But sometimes if I feel... Like, they're lazy. I don't like them. Like, I want there to be clues, or that upon a reread, the fact that our narrator is unreliable becomes clear. In the case of Piranesi, I find this kind of unreliable narrator totally acceptable, because he also doesn't have the information to give. I love a good reveal, as far as an unreliable narrator goes. If it feels like an out-of-nowhere plot twist, like, haha, I was lying the whole time! Gotcha! <laughs> <laughs> like, that bothers me. Yep. But mostly I don't mind them. So like if three quarters of the way through this book, Piranesi was out of nowhere like, oh, I really knew what was going on the whole time. I would have been pissed.
0: Yeah, that would have totally ruined the book. Or maybe I would have liked it. Who knows? Maybe. but (laughs) ah, I saw that coming. (laughs) Okay, I just had a revelation. Tell me. Lay it on me. 16 is also the number of years between the publication of Strange and Norell and this book. It took 16 years for Susanna Clark to come out of her illness enough to write this book. I mean, this is probably a coincidence, but 16. <laughs> maybe not. I think it's a revelation. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I never thought about that. Just as we were talking about it, I'm like, ah, 16, 16. I've seen this before. Oh,
1: yeah, no, that. And there it
0: was. Never crossed my mind. There's a clue. There's a clue. Could be. You found the clue. <laughs> I found the clue. <laughs> and I am smart. It's okay. I feel better about myself now.
1: <laughs> no, I love it. Beautiful, beautiful theory. So, as we mentioned before, all of the halls and vestibules of the house are filled with statues of all kinds, depicting all different types of people and scenes. There is one of a fawn that Pyrenees is particularly fond of. One of the first ones that we're introduced to is a woman holding a beehive. And they come up over and over again
0: in this book. So I think the fawn was definitely a Narnia nod. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I mentioned you said very little to me about this book. But one thing you did say was that you had ideas. So with so many parts of this book, I was constantly looking for what everything meant. And I mean, I failed, but (laughs) with each of the statues, I tried to decipher what the secret code was, and I just couldn't find anything, and it was so frustrating. (laughs) Knowing about Susanna Clark's chronic fatigue syndrome makes me think that there truly was no real point, which also bothers me because I really wanted the meaning to be revealed to me. Ah, uh,
1: yes. So, you know how I didn't say anything for so long about this book before anybody else had read it? Could you imagine if I tried to give you all of my theories before you'd read this book? Oh my God. <laughs> But anyways, I think that her being so sick and isolated did just the opposite. In being trapped within her home and her mind, I think she was able to project a sense of being trapped really well. Um, I should maybe mention here that the way I interpreted this story is that the entire thing is happening inside of Piranesi, or Matthew Sorensen's mind. I think everything from the house to the other, the skeletons, the journals, all of it, is the character living with
0: and working through trauma. It's one great big allegory to me. I guess it just meant that I was looking for meaning in some of the details, like the statues, but I couldn't personally find it. But yeah, everything you said makes sense to me for sure. And I do think that that's a really good interpretation and one that I would have preferred to have while reading. So maybe if I had heard all of your theories, I would have actually been much happier while reading this book but yeah it just didn't present to me next time that
1: we read something that's really like low concept like this i'll give you my theories beforehand and see how that goes (laughs)
0: okay yeah i wish i could do it like i wish i could go into my own other world and i could read the book after you've told me about it and then also read the book when you hadn't and then compare the two and then merge but alas that would just be so cool you can't disassociate as effectively as Piranesi. No, unfortunately. (laughs) But I do, I do agree that her illness influences this book heavily because the isolation is so complete in this novel, though I did find it surprising in a way that he was so accepting of that isolation and the world he was in. I wonder if that is a contrast to what Susanna was dealing with, or if maybe she also had to come to terms a little bit with that and accept her life as it was just to survive. Uh, Yeah, so I
1: also tried finding meaning in the statues. But yeah, like I was saying, after a while, I gave that up and decided I would just take them in as atmosphere and worry about it later. At the very end, I did have a thought about the statues though. When Matthew Rose Sorensen is out and about in the real world, he notices that a bunch of the people there are similar to the statues in the house. And I saw this as him actually finally being able to see the world around him as real, whereas before everything had to be ordered and filed away safely and pristinely in his mind. And I can't think of anything more pristine than a marble
0: statue. Yeah, that's true. There were a few interviews that I listened to with Susanna Clark, and I kept feeling as though the interviewers were trying to impart some kind of meaning, and she would be kind of like blase about it or say, oh, I hadn't really thought of that, or I hadn't thought of it that way. So that kind of made me think that I was trying to find meaning where there was none a little bit. I don't know. I guess I thought that the book was a puzzle that needed to be solved. And I'm not too sure that it was or if it was that I just couldn't crack the code. And I think that I would have enjoyed it more if I had been able to figure it out. And I saw the puzzle as like the mind as a whole. So the open-ended
1: nature of the ending felt so fitting for me. So because I saw the house and the story as, I don't know, symbolism and allegory for trauma and isolation, I think having a clear answer or solution would have detracted from the greater meaning. There have been so many interpretations of the work that I can totally understand if she never gives a definite answer. I've heard authors talk about how once they release a book into the world, it stops being theirs. And any meaning they tried to put in the book doesn't mean as much as the meaning that the reader takes from it, whether it was intentional or not, because the story now belongs to the reader. And I love this idea, and I think that this book is
0: a prime
1: example of that.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that.
1: So, Piranesi spends his time surviving in the house – And also writing in his journals of his daily activities, which include bringing the skeleton's offerings of food and water, finding various uses for dried seaweed and fish leather. One of my favorites was when he
0: was considering if he could knit a sock out of seaweed. (laughs) (laughs) Not totally related, but I wish I had my little post-it I wrote a note about like the only thing that I took note of was him saying that he was playing music on a flute made from the bone of a swan (laughs) I was like (laughs) what (laughs) anyways Uh,
1: I'll find a meaning for that don't worry (laughs) yeah Uh, so as we mentioned, he meets the other twice a week, and the other is using Piranesi to find a great and secret knowledge that is in the house. Piranesi plays along with it and his rituals,
0: but he doesn't really understand or believe in it. Ugh, I found the other so annoying, and it was so <laughs> annoying that he was always dressed super nice, and sometimes he would bring Piranesi items like plastic bowls and multivitamins, but he never actually make sure that Piranesi has anything he actually needs. (laughs) So to me, the other was a mental projection
1: of his abuser. Someone who looked good and provided without ever really giving him what he actually needed. Like just enough always to keep him trapped. I imagine the timed visits like therapy, except instead of the other being the therapist, it was more that these were the times that the other was being examined. Or it could even have been... Times when the other did visit him on the other side, being filtered through the
0: house. Yeah, I love that interpretation. Sometimes I can be so literal and I'm just like, man, give the guy some shoes. Can't you see him? He's (laughs) suffering. and Piranesi is just so accepting of his situation. He believes that the house is offering these things to the other and not him. And he's just like, oh, well, got no shoes.
1: Got no shoes. Maybe I could make some socks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, out of (laughs)
1: seaweed. One day, the other warns Piranesi about another person who Piranesi names 16 because they would be the 16th person he knows to exist. The other tells him to stay away from 16 and that he is
0: their enemy. He even says that if Piranesi talks to him, he'll go mad. Yeah, this is where it becomes very clear that the other is manipulating Piranesi. He's telling him what to think. He's revealing to him gaps in his memory and making Piranesi doubt himself and what he knows. He also casually mentions that Piranesi is mentally unstable and that he might have to kill him if it gets any worse. Basically gaslighting him to the extreme. Is this where he also casually mentions that maybe he could kill Sixteen. Like, it was just no big deal. I feel like there were quite a few times where casual killing is mentioned.
1: I imagine this as the abuse in his mind creating resistance to help. So by warning him against Sixteen, he's able to remain within the safety of the house. And it isn't until Sixteen is mentioned that he starts seeing the cracks, or the messages, that would eventually be his way out of the house.
0: Ooh, I also love that. I really am preferring your interpretation to what I was seeing when I was reading it. Seeing these characters as real people in his world was a little bit jarring for me, but also I can see that it would be jarring for Piranesi as well, given that he has so little contact with other people and also that he doesn't have the memories of the real world.
1: Yeah, so Piranesi then meets another man in the halls, who Piranesi names the prophet. And he tells Piranesi all kinds of things, like that the other's name is Val Ketterly, that Sixteen is going to come looking for him, and that he should stay away from them. He mentions that some people have an easier or harder time slipping into the world that Piranesi knows as the house. Oh, he mentions the names of some other people who have been there. And
0: Piranesi assumes the names belong to the bones that he has found. So... The fact that Pyrenees names him the prophet also kind of, I think, goes into my 16 theory because if 16 itself wasn't important, then the prophet would just be 17. He's not. Oh, <laughs> He's the prophet. I guess. <laughs> just give me this one. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I didn't, I didn't think of
0: that. <laughs> well, basically, the prophet Felt a little bit like an awkward information dump to me in the disguise of the mentor archetype. In my thoughts about this book, I kind of stored the information we got and then deleted the scene from my memory because it just did nothing for me. An old man showing up out of nowhere to bestow wisdom. I could have done without it, though I'm sure that there is some deeper meaning that I'm just not seeing, as with every other part of this book. Okay, I can't remember. Do we ever find out who the prophet actually is? Uh, Yes, the prophet was Lawrence Arn the cult leader. Okay, (laughs) that's what I thought, but I wasn't sure if I was just making it up. I mean, he's kind of a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, we always leave. Okay. (laughs) We always leave out one, like the bad guy out of the books. (laughs) Every time we. Oh, that's true. Every time we talk about a book, we're just like, oh. So I just, I was cutting him out just automatically. I like to leave out one major character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so Piranesi starts recording in his journal, some of the things that the prophet said, and this is where we start to get a little bit more of the story. One day, Piranesi finds out that 16 is actually a woman. I know he hears her voice talking to the birds. He also smells like a woman's perfume, but the other never mentioned that she is a woman. He just let him go on and on thinking that 16 was a man. And when confronted about it, the other says that Piranesi would have become too distracted if he'd known that she was a woman and would have wanted to make contact no matter the cost.
1: Which is actually kind of funny because like, I've read lots of people's reviews now and Piranesi presents as pretty asexual. Like, He doesn't seem to have any
0: sexual inclination at all yeah, I think that kind of goes into like the child, like, which isn't what I want to say, but that kind of personality that he has. It
1: doesn't feel like a part of at least the Pyradissi that's presented to us, like almost that mm-hmm. part of him is cut out. Yeah. So I just thought it was strange that the other would think that her being a woman would drive him mad.
0: Yeah. But then he does kind of in fact become a little bit obsessed with the fact that 16 is a woman because I guess in his mind, he has never seen one before. She keeps leaving him messages, but he's scared that even just reading her written word will cause him to go mad. So he like messes up her chalk notes so he can't read them, but then he still tries to read them anyways, and then agonizes over what the random unmissed words are supposed to mean, and also whether or not even these few words could drive him mad. Very clever, Catterly. That is an effective way to keep him obedient and afraid. Eventually, he does read a message from her that says, Are you Matthew Rose Sorensen? And I think this is where the story starts to unravel. Yes,
1: after 16's question, Are you Matthew Rose Sorensen? The floodgates begin to open, and he is able to slowly begin examining the more painful things and repressed memories. Like after this, Pyrdisi finds journals with strange dates that he doesn't recognize that have information he didn't remember ever writing, despite being a very exact and careful journaler.
0: Yeah, we learn through these journal entries that Piranesi is, in fact, Matthew Rose Sorensen. In another life, in another world, he was studying transgressive thinking. This led him to a cult led by Lawrence Arn Sales. Yeah, we learn that in pursuing this research for a book on the cult leader, he is abducted and goes missing for many years. So there are other cases of disappearances
1: associated with Arns Sales and his beliefs. Sales was also arrested for kidnapping and spent time in jail when one of his previous experiments, a missing man named James Ritter, is found locked away in a room by a housekeeper. He's a babbling mess and was exposed to the same type of mental and physical torture we could assume Matthew Sorensen was since he also knows about the house and the statues.
0: Yeah, through these entries, we learn who Piranesi was before the house, and it is a very different person than the one we have come to know up to this point. It's really hard to put together an outline of events, since what seems
1: like important plot points to me may not be the same parts that another reader would have picked out as important. And also, while this novel does have a plot, I would call it a character-driven narrative. So this also makes me a little fuzzy on the sequence of events.
0: Yes, I feel this. I felt like it was incredibly difficult to make an outline and to organize my thoughts because there are so many threads running through so many different parts of the book that it was hard for me personally to tie them together into a neat and presentable bundle that I like. (laughs) <laughs> There's also tons of details that don't mean anything to me and never really came together by the end of the book, though I'm sure they're important for some reason. There are probably a ton of important points
1: that like I just have completely ignored because they don't fit the book that I personally read. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the incredible parts of this book. Like you can take what you need and let the rest fall away and still leave with a complete picture or
0: no picture at all, like in my case. <laughs> <laughs> You just leave with a finished book. (laughs) He was like, "Oh, I read it." (sighs) It's okay, we did. (laughs) So we learn quite a bit through all these lost journal entries, and Piranesi becomes more and more undecided about who is really his friend and who isn't. It becomes increasingly clear to him that the other is not who he thought he was.
1: Yes, here we begin to see the merging of Matthew Rose Sorensen and Pyrenees. I viewed the journaling and the journal entries as therapy. Journaling is a super common thing in therapy, so to me, his journaling, where he's able to put his thoughts and have breakthroughs, made sense. And I could be totally off base, like with everything. This is just how I was interpreting the story. I basically saw the entire thing as Pyridisi slash Matthew Rose Sorensen being a horribly abused cult survivor that has retreated so deeply into his own mind or labyrinth that he isn't really seeing or isn't able to see the outside world around him right away. And as we're given more information so is he, and as the halls flood and the tides turn, and he is seeing new and different parts of the house, so is he slowly being drawn out of the labyrinth.
0: I think that you interpreted that perfectly. Oh, thanks. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) We can never know if that was what Susanna Clark was going for, but really, it doesn't even matter. Stories are different for everyone, and we all get something different from them and interpret them differently based on the things that we experience in our life and the things that we wish we hadn't.
1: Yes, I was unsure of what I thought was happening. Like I had feelings, but nothing concrete until the cult reveal. I have spent some time learning about cults. There are some great podcasts that do deep dives into some really intense cults. So I had an idea of just how deeply people can be changed and brainwashed by a personality like Arn Um, I'll put some of the podcasts I enjoyed in the show notes, I guess, if anyone's interested. Last podcast on the left isn't for everyone, but I enjoy them and they do lots of cult deep dives. So those are worth listening to if you enjoy their style. And the Heaven's Gate podcast was a good one. And by good, of course, I mean terrible. But the (laughs) podcast was great. Uh, That's the one where two people managed to recruit a bunch of people and convinced everyone aliens were going to come and beam them up. Everyone cut their hair and wore the same clothes. And eventually they committed mass suicide. I think it was 39 people. God. Uh, Jonestown. Yeah. Yeah. They had to discontinue the shoes that they all wore because 39 people killed themselves in them. That's awkward. Yeah, they were Nikes. So Nike was like, damn it. Probably really cool ones too. (laughs) Right? I know. Come on. (laughs) Jonestown is another wild and terrible example. Uh, Scientology as well. Like these cults have smart people in them, not people who you would imagine would be drawn in and brainwashed, leaving their friends and families, giving up all of their money and in some cases cutting off or mutilating the genitalia. Like, mass suicide is not something that happens when everyone is in a good mental space. So I know that my opinions of how deeply this man could have been traumatized after years of brainwashing made the whole story shift
0: into that trauma light. Oh my god, kind of lost me at genitalia.
1: <laughs> I gotta find a way to throw it into every punk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in the last one. Anyway, it's one of my favorite words. (laughs) But hearing you say all that, makes me realize how little I actually know about cults and I can see how I wouldn't come to those conclusions on my own. The cult aspect of the book is really only touched on and I was really craving more information there and without any prior knowledge, I guess I can see where you were able to fill in those blanks. It's just completely unbelievable what people can be led to believe and do. Ugh. And um, just while we're on the subject, I have listened to one episode of last podcast on the left, and I was so completely Mm -hmm. shook by it. It was the most horrible story about a serial killer I have ever heard. And I didn't even try to listen to another one of their episodes after that. I am curious about the cults, though. So maybe I'll try again. Yeah, I really like those guys.
1: But yeah, my true crime podcasts have been on hold for a while. They're way too
0: intense for me right now. Oh, definitely. As far as the cult stuff goes, I thought in this book it was quite like cult-light. Even looking back at those parts of the book, there's... Like the part where they really want the body from the museum, and then all the explanation of what they believed and did. I mean, I just didn't find it very interesting. But again, we are getting the information out of a scientist's journals. So I guess it makes sense that it wouldn't be written super interestingly. I don't know. I just found that I didn't really care enough about it. The way that he repeats some
1: phrases like prayers were also clues to me of his being brainwashed. Which goes with my cult theory. Like, the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. Or, may your paths be safe, your floors unbroken, and may the house fill your eyes with beauty. Are phrases he repeats throughout the novel. And as someone who has sat through a heck of a lot of Catholic masses, it reminded me of the call and response aspect of it. And that statement is likely to piss a few people off. But I can say from experience that I could participate in a mass without actually turning my brain on. So, a lot of his calm personality and acceptance of his circumstance have a religious
0: reverence kind of a feel to me. Definitely. I have never really been to church, so I can't speak to that, but I can see what you're saying. In an interview, Susanna Clark says that her father was a Methodist minister, and so they moved around quite a lot, and she was always the new kid and was always starting over. And she said that as an adult, she started to equate Christianity and church with feelings of isolation and alienation. And it's only now that she's beginning to come back to her faith and that she feels more attuned to the Catholic church instead of the Protestant one. I don't really know the difference between those two, but I can see those ties to this book. Yes, Totally.
1: So something I didn't catch while reading it because I did it on audio was the capitalization of certain words. The house, for example, is always capitalized. I have read in reviews that this shifts throughout the novel, which I thought was a very subtle but effective way of showing a change in our narrator. And like I said, I didn't actually get to experience this, but now that I know about it, I wish I did.
0: Yeah. Apparently there were quite a lot of words that were capitalized. From what I've heard, a lot of them were like aspects of the house that wouldn't normally be capitalized, which I think is interesting for sure. I can really only speculate because I also didn't get to experience it. But to me, it showed kind of a reverence for the house. It was definitely something that we missed out on by listening to the audio. I love audiobooks, but we just never quite know when the audio is not going to be an advantage. And I would have loved to see that shift. I almost just bought the book the other day because I just kind of felt like I missed out on so much listening to the audio, even though it was it was great. It was great audio. But I also couldn't spend thirty six fifty on a two hundred and seventy two page book that oh. I've already read and didn't like. <laughs> but I almost did.
1: I guess that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. If I ever find it at these bookstore.
0: Oh, I'm so getting it then. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay. There was one detail of the book that I did find a bit problematic. And this is another time when I really wish I had a a physical copy of the book so I could go back, but I can't remember who it was exactly, but one of the men, I want to say it was Ketterly, but it could have been Arne Sales. Not sure. I don't know. One of the bad guys though, is described a few times as being gay. And I kept waiting for there to be a reason for this. And none presented themselves other than to maybe explain why men were being abducted which isn't great. It just felt like a gay villain to me. And not that gay people can't be villains, but it just didn't feel necessary to this story. I mean, again, maybe I'm just not seeing the reason. I don't know.
1: Yes. So that was Arn Sales. And I agree that was probably unnecessary unless I'm missing something. But I I don't know what it is, though. I was also not a fan of that. The only thing I could maybe have seen was if she was going to add a sexual abuse aspect, which I also would have hated. But there were also female cult members, so what the hell. Overall, it felt like unnecessary gay villainy. And I don't think it added to the story. There are plenty of weird sex things in cults,
0: but this felt bad. Yeah, I kept expecting weird culty sex things to come up, especially because of this little tidbit of information. Like, maybe she felt like she needed to explain why he was with a man in an orgy later on. But there was no orgy, so why? (sighs) Not a single orgy in this book. Yeah, I was really looking forward (laughs) to them. Damn it. Again. (laughs) 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 Uh.
1: Okay, let's see. I guess there's still more book, hey? Uh, We've kind of deviated away from the already incredibly
0: loose outline of the plot. Yeah, I'm not sure how I went from nothing happened in this book to frick, so much happens in this book (laughs) that I can't even explain it. (laughs) Okay, so we've said so much about what we think everything means.
1: Now, what actually happens in this book? (laughs) Piranesi realizes that there's going to be a huge flood, and he warns Ketterly, but he couldn't think of a way to warn 16.
0: Uh, Ketterly dies. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Ketterly dying. Yeah, there's that. Um, we learned through the journal entries that the other is Val Ketterly, who was like second in this cult. He wanted to be the leader and he desperately wanted to find the answers he was searching for. When Matthew Rose Sorensen goes to him to research Lawrence Arn Sales, he is abducted and from that point on is a missing person. We can assume that this is when his indoctrination into this cult or brainwashing or magicking away to another world began.
1: Yes. So Cutterly, he's a real bastard. He is very much an abuser and a manipulator. Oh, and definitely a freaking kidnapper or I don't know, adult napper. Abductor? Oh, you know, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, like I said, in my interpretation of the story. Ketterly is not actually there, and is more of a mental stand-in for what he represents to Piranesi in the house. The Ketterly in the house is gaslighting him and doing everything he can to prevent Piranesi from getting help or finding his own way out. Not that he was looking for one anymore, necessarily. But as things get more desperate for him, he begins making preparations for the flood. And Ketterly also sees this as a way to kill Sixteen. Like, one of these two is getting swept away in the waters. Ketterly's death in the house represented, to me, Matthew Sorensen finally breaking free of him. He also disappears in the real world, and while this could be considered something that kills my theory, I actually really like it. I like that it leaves the door open for the fantasy aspect of the story, and I love that we don't actually know what exactly is real. And I do have a solution for Ketterly's purchases and disappearance, but it's... Not really important, and is kind of small fries.
0: It's just a way to uh, keep keep me happy. <laughs> I also really like that that can kind of kill your theory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, oh, so you're forcing me to say it. Don't worry, I will. <laughs> so in real life, it's reported that Ketterly has gone missing, and that he purchased a rubber raft and a gun and a bunch of stuff that he took into the house for that event. But the real Ketterly also bought those things, which his friends are like, that's really weird. To me, the real Ketterly did those things. And Matthew Rose Sorensen, the one who's healing, heard that news story and inserted that portion of it into his mind and used that story as like props in his own (laughs) mental play.
0: And that's... (laughs) That's it. Well, isn't that convenient? (laughs) Yes. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Definitely keeps the possibility of different interpretations open, which is great. It's great. I'm just bitter about my own. Doesn't matter how far I want to reach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Reach for the stars, Shanna.
1: I will. Piranesi tries to save Ketterly, and is actually really sad when he dies, since he was his only companion for so long. And this screamed Stockholm Syndrome to me, and I loved it. Okay, I mean, I don't love Stockholm Syndrome, I'm not a psychopath, probably, but I loved that the reality of that attachment people can feel towards their abusers wasn't ignored.
0: I love Beauty and the Beast, so obviously I love Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, what the hell? (laughs) But other than that, absolutely. Piranesi was so conflicted because on one hand, he knew that the other wasn't on his side anymore. But also the other was all he had for so long. So it was very realistic to the situation. And yeah, I agree. It was great that that wasn't ignored in the story. So, Piranesi gets out, he
1: finds James Ritter, and then he goes back to the house. Did I miss anything? (laughs) Um, nope, that's the rest of the story. (laughs) So, yeah, he gets out, although he doesn't really want to leave the house, and it takes quite a bit of work on Sixteen's part to convince him. But, yes, he does leave, and then he starts healing, and is able to spend time outside of the house. He finds James Ritter who was the other guy who was found in the room. He was abducted by the, that cult or are in sales. And he is someone who's gone through the same trauma as him. So connection and understanding and community is so important. And knowing someone else in the world who has experienced those same things is useful. And as far as going back to the house, he loves the house. He spent years there and he knows it. Since I see the house as his mind and solitude, of course he can go back. The good thing is that he knows how to get out now.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that they each were able to find in each other someone who could understand what they'd been through. It really is so important to not feel alone when something so traumatic happens. So I thought that was great. (sighs)
1: Yes. Okay. So this is getting long, isn't it? Yeah. There are so many more more things I could talk about, but here, this will be my last point. I thought that the way that we see the characters of Piranesi and Matthew Rowe Sorensen merge together was really well done. I love that as he heals, he doesn't lose Piranesi, the victim, but he also doesn't suddenly turn back into who he was before all of this happened. We are shaped and changed by the things that happened to us, and I love the way that she combined these two different people with their different experiences into who he was going to be moving forward in his life. Both of those aspects of his personality are him and are important. And I don't know.
0: I like it a lot. Yes, I agree with that. Was it this book where he says that he is both Matthew Rose Sorensen and Piranesi, but also neither of them? It sounds right, but I couldn't find the exact quote. I really like that, too, because that is so true. I mean, it could have been another book, but it definitely applies here as well. I don't know. Uh, Yes. So when he goes back to live with his family is when he talks about being neither and both. I mean, I think you've convinced me that as a book, it was very well done. And yes, there are tons of layers and different interpretations that I just wasn't able to see. So I can see why it would be long listed for the Women's Prize. And I could see it being shortlisted as well. I love being shown another way to see things. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for letting me be just as pretentious
1: as I possibly could. I mean, honestly, I'm sure I could go on, but you get the idea.
0: I am very deep and thoughtful. (laughs) Oh, yes. I'm never going to (laughs) hear the end of it. (laughs) Okay, still, as far as my personal enjoyment goes, I still didn't love it. I'm reminded a bit of The Vegetarian by Han Kang, actually, where we have a story that revolves around mental health and abuse of power mixed with Beautiful but confusing visuals. I think what you said about that book was a book doesn't have to be enjoyable to be a good book, something like that, anyways. And that is how I feel about this one.
1: Yes, I didn't love that one. But the longer I've sat with it, the more I've been able to understand its appeal and artistic merit. Like, I obviously loved this one, but I can totally understand why there are so many different opinions on it. Honestly, though, that just makes me love it more. Exactly. I appreciate this book, but alas, It was not for me. So I thought it might be worth looking at some of the ways other people read this novel from various places across the internet. So here are a few of the things I found people saying they thought this book was about. Imagination, humanity's relationship to nature, spirituality and belief systems, a meditation on epistemology, a fable, a thought experiment, an homage or critique of the fantasy classics, fantasy in its purest form, A meditation on identity, an allegory of a life well-lived, about how finding joy and fulfillment in the world fundamentally changes a person, a parable of living within our means and respecting our world, a commentary on being used to or even finding comfort in abusive or weird scenarios, and uh, a story about mental health or even hypnotism. Like, I could go on, but you get the idea. Like, there are so many different ways to interpret this story. And
0: I find pretty much every review of it interesting in its own way. I guess it can be a book where as readers, we can ascribe whichever meaning we need at the time of reading it. For me, I think what I needed was pure fantasy and escapism. And what I ended up finding was the opposite. And that just didn't work for me. But I absolutely loved the discussion around this book. I think this would have made a great book club book. Agreed. And okay, so I think that's it. I I think we covered,
1: well, okay, a bunch of stuff. I honestly don't know if we even covered anywhere near the whole story. Uh, This was such a short novel, and the story was really straightforward when reading it, but it has some sort of extra magic where the more you think about it, the more it grows.
0: I'm suspecting witchcraft. I don't know. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah, straightforward is a great way of describing it. I keep wanting to say that it's simple, but that's not right. Apparently, there is just a ton to discuss in this very short book. (laughs) Oh, that was a good episode. (laughs) Yeah, you are so smart. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Thank you. You are not. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) I know. I love that reminder. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> uh, no, you're good. You're good. I probably got it all wrong. I think we all got it all wrong. Let's just say that. <laughs> what do you guys think? What do you guys think this book was about?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let us know.
0: Okay, so one quick last thing. So our one of our reading goals for the year was to read all the books from the Women's Prize shortlist, if not the entire long list. And I think we did pretty good. Between the two of us, we read 11 of the long-listed books, and there were 16, so we only missed five. And we read all of the shortlist ones except one book. Um, we did not read Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller. There's still time, though. We could read it. I have it on my shelf. But I just can't bring myself to do it. Why, do you ask? Because it's bleak and gray and sad hmm One thing that a lot of these books had in common were they had the same sad, bleak tone. And it's not that they were bad, but when you're reading 16 books with the same sadness. Oh, just such a bummer. It was I started much. this one
1: and I got oh, probably 20% of the way and I had to put it down because I was like, man, this is bumming me out. Mm-hmm. It just... It, it, Mm, It is set in the wintertime, at least as far as I am. Uh, Their mom dies, and just, oh, yeah, the color gray. And imagine taking a shovel and trying to dig in frozen dirt. That's how that book makes me feel.
0: I feel like that's something they might do. Maybe that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. yeah there's still time to read it. It sounds good. The cover's beautiful. Mm. It made it to the short list. I'm sure it's worth it, but I don't know if I will make this goal again. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should pick a different award next year.
0: Maybe we should just read the short list and not try to squeeze the whole long list in
1: yeah, that's actually probably a good idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or just even just the winner. You know.
1: just the winner would also mm. that would work, yeah, uh, so guess what? two weeks from now. <laughs> We invite you to join us for Book Club. We are reading The Secret Diary of Hendrik Groen, 83 and a quarter years old by Hendrik Groen. We will be posting discussion questions on Instagram and Facebook starting on September 22nd. So look out for those. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book.
0: You can find us at best underscore book club everywhere, or even just send us an email at best underscore book club at outlook.com. We absolutely love to hear from you guys.
1: Yes, we do. Okay, Jen. Well, in... Yeah, so like I said, we'll see you guys in a couple weeks for book club. And then we are doing something cool in October. And we'll tell you guys about it in two weeks. So make sure you come, at least for that. Get through this book. And then I have a reward for you. Yes.
0: Yes. It's going to be so much fun. Yes.
1: Okay. Um, I will see you in a couple weeks.
0: See you in a couple weeks. Bye.